This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. Get ready for the next leap in wireless technology with AT&T 5G. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 6th. Today, the fight for the soul of the two political parties and whether celebrity endorsements make a difference for presidential candidates. So I think what's been interesting about the Democratic primary process so far is it feels like there have been two very different narratives about the state of the Democratic Party, because there is this one narrative where parties seem to be getting weaker generally. And then you have a president like President Trump, who is very much not of the establishment of the Republican Party. And you have a Bernie Sanders, who is also not of the establishment of the Democratic Party. And that that's a sign that the party system is weakening. But then you have the results of Super Tuesday, where the most establishment candidate is the big winner. And I wonder what that says about how parties are doing right now. Well, it's a complicated question. I'm Dan Baltz. I cover politics for The Post and have done so for many years. We could start with the two people you mentioned first, President Trump. You know, one other thing I'll say, because he mentions the fact that I was at one point a Democrat. And Senator Sanders. I am an independent and I have always run in Vermont as an independent. Neither of whom is a traditional member of the party whose nomination they're running for. While I caucus uh, with the uh, Democrats... In the United States Senate, that's what I've been doing. President Trump was a Democrat for many years, later became a Republican to run for the presidency. Were you a Democrat at that point when you said that? Well, at one point I was, at one point I was a Democrat and for a period of time. He might have run as an independent. And I think the fact that he ran as a Republican tells us something about the strength of political parties, but also the weakness of political parties. In New York City, everybody was a Democrat, uh, practically. If you run for city council, if you run for political office, if you, whoever wins the Democrat primary is automatically, that's, you know, there was almost no election because... He had all the elements of somebody who, in a different day, would have said, I'm going to run as an independent. Um, I have celebrity. I, I have... Everybody knows who I am. I don't have to, you know, have anybody helping on that. I'm very, very wealthy, so I can fund my own campaign. I can do it the way I want to. I don't have positions that are rigidly Republican. You know, I have views that cut across the spectrum. But I can't win if I run as an independent. There is no path for an independent. So on the one hand, it says there is a strength of political parties that people who aspire certainly to be president or to be senator or governor say the best path is to run within an established political party. The weakness of political parties is what Donald Trump showed. And that is that there is not a quote-unquote establishment that really has the ability to direct the traffic. Donald Trump came in, the Republican establishment was, you know, alarmed to horrified that he was doing well. They talked about trying to do everything they could, but they couldn't do anything about it. He beat the establishment. 
We can't say at this point whether Bernie Sanders is going to be able to beat the Democratic establishment, but Vice President Biden winning big on Super Tuesday. One could say that is kind of the Democratic establishment fighting back in a way that the Republican establishment was not able to do, and and I think that's a fair point. Uh, On the other hand, you could say that Biden's success on Super Tuesday had less to do with the Democratic establishment and more with the fact that there are you know, millions and millions of people who do not want Donald Trump to be president again, and they see in Biden a better opportunity to do that than they see in Senator Sanders. Dan has spent several decades writing and thinking about politics. And even though it feels like this current era is way outside the realm of the ordinary, Dan said that there have actually been other moments in the past where there was this huge divide within a political party. I mean, you could go back and, you know, you could go back to 1964 and look at the, the rise of Barry Goldwater. I remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Threatening the Eastern establishment liberal wing of the Republican Party. Anyone who joins us in all sincerity, we welcome. Those two sides of the Republican Party were wholly different, and there were people on one side or the other who were not going to vote for the other person. Those who do not care for our cause, we don't expect to enter our ranks in any case. And Dan says that he's also seen the ebbs and flows in political parties, both in terms of their ideology and also in terms of how much power they have. You could look at the 1980 campaign, and a lot of people initially in that campaign thought Ronald Reagan was too far right. Now, Governor Reagan is running on a platform that calls for a constitutional amendment banning abortion. To be a viable candidate in the general election. That, I think, violates freedom of conscience as much as anything that I can think of. You know, he proved the doubters wrong, both within the Republican Party and then in the general election. But nonetheless, you've had some of these ideological splits. But one thing that Dan points to as a major factor in how parties have lost their power and their influence is money. Money is a perennial issue in politics. And I think there is an element of of the role of money and what we see as kind of the decline of political parties. There are a couple of things that have happened over the last, you know, number of years. One was the the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law, which got rid of what was in those days known as soft money. And soft money was money that could be given to political parties in particular in unlimited amounts. And this was seen as you know, as an evil in American politics. And there were efforts made through McCain-Feingold to put limits on that. That had a significant effect on the party's ability to be the kind of main fundraiser for political activity in campaigns. The second thing that happened was Citizens United when the Supreme Court basically said that corporations and others could give, you know, huge amounts in, in in different ways, but not to political parties. This is a shorthand to basically say money moved out of political parties and into other places. So we've had the rise of super PACs. We've had the rise of independent expenditure operations. So in all kinds of ways, because of campaign finance rules and because of what the Supreme Court has done, money has been dispersed. And there are a lot of other avenues for it to take effect. And all of that has helped to weaken political parties. I think there's another phenomenon. I have seen this more in younger people than in older people, but I think there's another phenomenon that I associate with this particular moment in American politics. And that is that many younger people do not necessarily see political parties 
as the best vehicle for change. Hmm. I think they see political parties as, you know, as more status quo, as more establishment, quote unquote. And they see other ways of, of organizing for action that are outside the traditional party structure. Now, when you come to, you know, a presidential election year, a lot of that folds into itself. And so the people who are kind of in the organizing piece of it fold into whatever party that, you know, their work is more closely associated with. But I think that's another element of what we're going through now. When we talk about this lack of trust in the party, and and I think part of a larger inherent lack of trust in institutions, there are a lot of people who vote Democratic or vote Republican consistently, but don't actually seem that invested in the party itself or the party establishment or the party infrastructure, but that at the end of the day, they feel vehemently against the other party. They certainly don't identify as a Republican and they certainly don't identify as a Democrat. And so there's this like tension between people's actual loyalty to the party or people's loyalty to not being of the other party. Yeah, I think that we can we can think about this in a couple of ways. One is there's there's kind of a contradiction that we see right now, which is that more and more people, when asked to identify themselves, say, I'm not of either party, I'm independent. And in states where you have to register by party, often the fastest growing segment of that is people who say, I'm a, I have no party. That's one trend that's very clear, and we've, we've seen it for a number of years. The flip side of that is that we have gone from an era of ticket splitting to an era of straight ticket voting. Ticket splitting, if you go in and you vote for president from one party and you vote for senator from another party, you're basically saying, you know, I'm, I'm picking and choosing from different columns. I'm not rigidly voting for one party or the other. In 2016, for the first time ever, the winner of every race for Senate was of the same party as the presidential candidate who won that state. We've never seen that before. Now, that may turn out to be an anomaly, but that has been a trend that that down the ballot from president to governor to senator to House member, people are voting with the same party. To your point, which is, Whatever I may think of my own party, I really don't like people in the other party or, the, or what the other party stands for. There's a lot of research on that front. Recent research would say if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you feel about as positive toward your party as people 20, 25 years ago. But your view of the other party is significantly more hostile. And that's part of the pulling apart that we've seen and the polarization that we've seen. So what's going to happen after 2020. And obviously what's going to happen is very dependent on what actually happens in November. But is there this feeling that that the Democratic Party just doesn't have enough space or enough bandwidth for the two extremes of people who consider themselves Democrats? Because at least my sense is that a lot of Democrats are extremely stressed right now because this was maybe a worst case scenario in what the possibilities were, that you have these two different candidates that there is at least a lot of discussion around, I would vote for this one person, I would not vote for this other person. I think there there are a lot of Sanders supporters who at least say they would not consider voting for Joe Biden. And certainly a lot of moderate Joe Biden supporters who say, I am too fearful to vote for Bernie Sanders. And 
Has that happened before where it's not just an issue of who would be my preferred choice for this party's nominee, who who I think would be a better president, but I am choosing between a person that I would vote for and a person that I would absolutely not vote for in November? On the one hand, yes, that there are Sanders people who say I would not vote for Joe Biden and many Joe Biden supporters who would say I would not vote for Bernie Sanders. That's in the context of the primary. I think one of the things we're going to have to see is whoever emerges as the nominee, do the supporters of that other person take a walk or do they say, ah, the the, the single biggest priority this year still is to defeat Donald Trump and we have to come together uh, in the general election. I kind of think of these people as the people who say that they're moving to Canada after the election, where it's like, really, how many people are actually moving to Canada when their non-preferred candidate wins? Yeah. You know, this question of how strong our political parties, this dates back decades and decades and decades. There's a, there's always a kind of an ebb and flow of the role of a political party and the value of a political party and the strength or weakness of political parties. And individual battles accentuate that as we're, as we're seeing once again. But for people who are in the progressive movement, they could look at this in a half-empty or half-full way. I mean, if you look at it in the half-full way, you'd say there's been a lot of progress made over, you know, X number of years in bringing ideas into the mainstream of the center-left party or the liberal party or whatever. If you are a, you know, a glass half-empty, you say, yeah, 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 but in the end, our dreams always get crushed. (laughs) Um, And I think that that's, you know, partly in the eye of the beholder, um, and partly it will depend on whether the Democrats win the election in November or lose the election in November. Dan Baltz covers politics for The Post. This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. I wanted to do a story about celebrity endorsements in this Democratic presidential race. I'm Jada Yuan, and I write political features for The Washington Post. Pete Buttigieg had these sort of clean-cut, mostly white celebrities who you could imagine being in a glee club. Mandy Moore, everybody. You are friendly with Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I am. If you looked at Bernie Sanders supporters... They all sounded to me like the freaks you'd find in Freaks and Geeks. And I'm here because you're here. Because I feel... Joe Biden has imagined Tom Hanks and George R.R. Martin hanging out together with Vivica A. Fox. Uh, I love Joe Biden. Um, I'd love someone with experience and knowledge. Andrew Yang is out of the race, but his group of celebrities seemed like the actual cool kids in the high school who realized that there is life after high school. So it's people like Ken Jeong and Dave Chappelle did more than I've seen pretty much any celebrity surrogate do for any candidate. Thank you for your support. Uh, for me and for you, yes, indeed. All right. <laughs> so here's my question. Is there any evidence that these kinds of celebrity endorsements are actually helpful or meaningful to candidates, that they actually translate into votes? 
the short answer is no. Um, there has been one documented instance when it actually worked, which was Oprah for Obama in 2008. It's your time to seize the opportunity to support a man who, as the Bible says, loves mercy and does justly. There was a study that showed that she gave him one million additional votes in the primaries and caucuses. And other than that, the only instance I heard, and it's very sort of not completely well documented, is Frank Sinatra endorsing John F. Kennedy in West Virginia. He got him the union vote, and it's sort of common lore and I do believe fairly reported that he basically golfed with some of his mafia buddies and said, please deliver me the union vote in West Virginia for John F. Kennedy. And that is what happened. So unless you've got a celebrity with mob ties, maybe <laughs> you will not necessarily see a, a bump in your vote. But what what I did notice on the ground was that Dave Chappelle really activated the volunteers. And the volunteers knocking on doors, phone banking, are really what's going to get the vote out for you in the end. I do feel like, especially for Buttigieg, that he was helped a lot in the beginning by these celebrities who came forward and said, I'm really interested in this guy, and I think that he's got a great message, and that it got other people to take him a little bit more seriously and at least give him the the basic amount of attention of checking out who he is and what he's about. Yeah, and I think that it probably helped a lot in his early fundraising. I mean, that was the big story of Pete Buttigieg was just how much money he was able to generate in places like New York and Los Angeles. And that is a way to get donors. So there's a risk that a politician can look too cozy, like they're basically catering to the fabulously wealthy and the fabulously famous. But I also just think that there's like a cringe factor sometimes of having these politicians look like they're trying to be too friendly with celebrities. I'm thinking of the Tom Steyer video from last month where Juvenile was at one of his campaign events and Tom Steyer was dancing to Juvenile and it was just so painful to watch. That's where the where the brand of the celebrity and the candidate don't really mesh. And also, I think it really depends on how well you're doing in the polls. So for him, dancing on the stage with the celebrity is just kind of a look at me, look at me. I have a celebrity like pay attention to me. I'm still going to lose this election. So that's I think that's where the cringe factor comes from. But I mean, I think what's really interesting is that Bernie Sanders has probably more celebrities, more cool celebrities than any other candidate now that Andrew Yang and his really cool celebrities have dropped out. And his whole message is anti-elitism. And yet he's just completely impervious to that. He can have as many celebrities pile on as possible, and it still works out for him. What I did hear from a GOP strategist was that basically for Democrats during the primary season, I mean, all of Hollywood is considered pretty liberal. And you can have celebrities pile on as much as you want during the primaries. But where it starts to hurt you is in a general election, especially when you're going up against someone like Donald Trump, who is appealing to blue collar workers. And you have someone like Hillary Clinton in 2016, who's ending her campaign with like, a giant concert with Lady Gaga and Bruce Springsteen, it creates that kind of dichotomy where it's like, she's got all these celebrities, look at me, I've got all these celebrities in my corner, elitism going on, like, like it's not a good look in the general election, especially against Donald Trump. 
Jada, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Jada Yuan writes political features for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. Get ready for the next leap in wireless technology with AT&T 5G.